Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Sydney book. She was an heiress and a passionate protector of urban conservation. And on the 4th of July 1975, publisher and journalist Juanita Nielsen arrived for a meeting at the Carousel Club in King's Cross about advertising in her publication, Now. She entered the building, but was never seen alive again. Her body's never been found. Three days after her disappearance, a road maintenance crew working on the F4 freeway, the main route through Sydney's west, found Juanita's black leather handbag. To this day, she remains on the missing persons list. Why was Juanita's life in peril, and what might have become of the outspoken crusader? You know what really struck me about this story? Is that you go down Victoria Street in Potts Point, and life goes on. Across the road from her house, the barista's making coffee, there's people sitting out the front having their coffee, people walking up and down the street, and there's Juanita's place still there intact, and life goes on. And, and you know, I just think it's sort of sad in a way, and her parents actually died three years after her, so they never knew or had any closure about what happened to Juanita. Is there anything to indicate uh, to just the average person walking by that this was her place? Yeah, there's a, a small plaque and there's one for Mick Fowler too and I'll tell you Mick's involvement shortly but I always find that quite poignant and quite amazing to, to go and visit there but I've got a bit of a soft spot for Juanita. She's an interesting woman. She was an heiress as you mentioned so she was from a family that had a lot of money. They had a shopping complex called Foy's. Yeah. For Generation X like me or Y or Z or who have never heard of Mark Foy or non-Victorians, I don't know whether they were in other states, were they? Yeah, I think they had a store in Melbourne. I always remember they had, as a kid, uh, they had a huge big uh, Santa Claus that they used to put up on the front of the store. Oh, okay. But is it fair to say it's like a David Jones or a Meyer? Not as big, but along okay. those lines. Like some of the smaller ones of that era, like Ball and Welsh in Melbourne, and you know, they were well known to local people, but not necessarily national. So she was an heiress to a very large department store chain. Anyway, her father took a takeover offer and caused a lot of problems between them. She held a bit of a shareholder, a vault for want of a better word, wasn't able to stop it and consequently he sold the chain and she felt like she'd been robbed of her future. It was her, her inheritance. Her inheritance. Yeah. So they were estranged for quite some time and the reason I'm telling you this is because eventually they made up and resolved that difference and he gave her quite a large payout which led to her buying Victorian Terrace House in Victoria Street Potts Points and yeah. led to her buying now which was a publication, and she worked from home there. And, of course, this led to her demise in the long run. What led to her disappearance do we know? Tell us about what she was trying to do. Yeah, well, you know, this is still a very real issue today. So a developer, Frank Thiemann, wanted to get rid of a lot of the little homes and put up high-rises, apartments, more units. Of course, a lot of people in this street, in this area, were working-class people. When are we talking? What sort of period? We're talking 1973. Okay. So it brought about the Victoria Street Residence Action Group who protested against that. So Mick Fowler, he was a, a seaman or a sailor and a musician, was one of the local residents. And there was a lot of very working class people on the street. And when Mick was at sea, the development group, right. Parks Development, evicted his mother and boarded up the house. He came back to find his house unaccessible and his mother evicted. What, thrown out in the street? Well, I don't know whether she was thrown on the street, but she was certainly evicted. So he got his mates from the uh, Siemens Union of Australia and the Builders Labourers Federation to move the developers' guards and gain re-entry to the house. So, as you can imagine, that went down like a treat. 
fights between residents, unions, developers, and Juanita's newspaper you know, poured the whole lot. She was a major crusader for the working people of that street. Yep. But they had a little bit of a win because in 1973, Builders Labor's Federation slapped a green ban on any development on the street. So they temporarily won and a bit of a stalemate. There was a fellow who was the head of the action group, Arthur King. Anyway, he was kidnapped for three days kept in the boot of a car and then when he was let go he moved his family and got out of there quick smart that was enough for him yeah. so it got dangerous it got aggressive brutal I and mean, a scary time for a lot of residents in that neighborhood so Thiemann then in 1975 once this green band came in was crying poverty said that he was losing up to three thousand a day now because of this three thousand dollars three thousand dollars a day a bit of money in those yeah, days, I suppose. Well, exactly we're talking 1975 now so this has been going on for some time and he said he was facing financial ruin etc so Juanita's reporting and lobbying played a very significant role in this downfall so you can see where this is going and she was also helping the Woolloomooloo Resident Action Group as well, which was going through its own development battles. So she was very much the voice of the community. So the paper had become, or the, the magazine had become that. Yeah, it had. So she would have become the target of people who were upset about the way she was defending this and using the paper to do that. Do we know how she ended up going to that meeting and, and what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. We do know that. She became aware that you know her life might be in danger and she had a partner at the time, a boyfriend who was a photographer and they'd made an agreement. She'd let him know if she was going somewhere so he'd know at least or somebody would know where she was. There's a number of shady characters involved in this and we won't go into too much depth on them. Frank Thiemann was a developer. I'm not saying Frank was shady but clearly it was in his best interest to get this area cleared as quickly as he could. For a while he was a likely prime suspect in what might have happened to her. There was a fellow called Abe Saffron who um, was quite renowned as having alleged gangland connections. Oh, I remember Abe when I worked in Sydney. Did you? Uh, Abe was well known around town. Uh Um, Yeah, wasn't short of telling people who might be uh, interested in his affairs what they could do. Yes. Abe owned the Carousel Club. Now, yeah. that'll be significant in a moment because that's where Juanita was last seen, so I'll come back to that in a moment. But, yeah, so he was the owner of the Carousel Club. There was James Anderson. He was one of the bosses of the Carousel Club. Mm-hmm. A Detective Sergeant Fred Cray. Yeah. He was a little bit uh, allegedly shifty as well. And then there was a person by the name of Trigg. Now, Trigg's important to us. Eddie Trigg, I guess what you'd call a, a right-hand man and did whatever was needed by whoever needed it done. He was started as a bouncer at the Carousel Club and kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. was living very handsomely in an uh, Elizabeth Bay apartment overlooking the harbour with his girlfriend, Marilyn King. Marilyn was born Arthur. She was a transvestite. Just Google her, Marilyn King. She's beautiful. She came from New Zealand. There's some of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Now, this Eddie Trigg and another gentleman by the name of Shane Martin Simmons decided they'd abduct Juanita from her home. So they've gone around there. Their plan was to grab her by the arms, put a pillow slip over her head and take her and give her a rough up and let her go and she'd drop the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But when they got there, her boyfriend, David Farrell, was home at the time. So uh, he opened the door to them and they sort of made the excuses and left. So then they had to come up with another plan and this is when they invited Juanita to come down to the Carousel Club for a meeting because they wanted to take some advertising in now. So it was a legitimate business meeting. A plausible excuse. A plausible excuse. And even though she was wary of her safety, uh, she told people where she was going and that's where she went. Mm-hmm. 10.40 was the meeting. She entered the building and that was the last time anyone saw her alive. In fact, that's the last time anyone saw her. 
Okay, so what do we know from other people who were there as to what happened at that meeting? We mentioned Trigg's girlfriend, Marilyn. Yep, Marilyn had some things to say about the, the way Eddie uh, Trigg had in, been involved with Juanita. Later years, she went on to um, say that she saw Juanita at the club and when she next saw Trigg, he'd had blood spots on his shirt. He was brandishing his fish and she could see it was swollen and he was in pain. She said she questioned him further and he said, what you don't know won't hurt you. Mm. And he said to her, if the police ask how this happened, say I hit you. So he took off then for America on a false passport and he stayed there for seven years. Eventually he was arrested in San Francisco in 1982, but there wasn't enough evidence then to convict him or his partner, that Martin Simmons. So they were convicted with conspiracy to abduct. They were never convicted for murder. And there's still no body, of course. Okay. Uh, he got a three-year sentence for that. Martin Simmons got two. But what was interesting, as you just mentioned before, another transvestite, Loretta Crawford, was at the reception desk at the Carousel Club that morning. She was a bit fearful of the boss, James Anderson, but after he passed away, years later, she told the 7.30 report that she felt safe enough to say what had happened. She said she'd heard shouting and overcome by curiosity, she went downstairs to the basement and she said she saw Juanita lying dead on the floor, shot through the forehead, blood from a single gunshot wound to the head, uh, and it was just pooling around her hair. But it's interesting because another author, Peter Reese, noted in his book that in 2004, police forensics found no evidence of that in, their, in that basement. There was something that was said by Trigg to Marilyn about her not feeling a thing when uh, Marilyn quizzed him about you know the bruising on his hands. That doesn't kind of go together with someone being shot. If he's got bruised hands, mm. it's kind of confusing. It is confusing, unless Juanita did put up a fight and the shooting was a last resort. It's a horrendous thing for her parents. Uh, as I said, they only lived three years longer than Juanita. But in later years, uh, Marilyn went back to New Zealand. She returned to life as Arthur gave up her transvestite days and yep. uh, she maintained that triggered punch Juanita with a blow to the temple violent enough to kill her so she's not saying about the gunshot but she said in, in later years she begged him to just say where Juanita was just for the family and to give them some closure but he'd never spoke another word about Juanita and he died when he was 72 in a Waterloo hotel room in Sydney. We heard earlier that contents of her bag or her bag mm. were found on the found on the F4. Mm. Did anything else ever found? Yeah, a young school lad found a couple of other bits and pieces from a handbag as he was walking home along that way, and that's it. That's all that was ever found. Mm. So it's, it is a mystery, and of course the suspects, you know, come back into the fold here. The developer who died a free man in 1989. He lived in a very wealthy suburb, lived a very high life. I can remember seeing a spread a, a party. I think it was a New Year's Eve or some party. He and his wife hosted at their waterside mansion, and all the photos of everybody. And meanwhile, down in Dury Street, yeah. And Mick Fowler, uh, the musician and seaman, who was the very last person to leave that street. And he ended up leaving three years after the fight because he just got too much room. And he actually died quite young. He died at 50. A lot of people felt that the stress of that whole incident contributed to his early death. The other suspects, Abe Saffron, who, who he mentioned as the owner of the Carousel Club, told the inquest, I was not aware she existed. I've never heard her name mentioned prior to her disappearance. Mm -hmm. James Anderson, Trigg's boss at the Carousel Club, had an alibi. He was in Surfer's Paradise at the time. He protested his innocence until his death in 2003. And Cray, the detective on the case, according to the Parliamentary Joint Committee, was identified as a significant suspect, which is interesting, isn't it? So did this committee ever come up with any finding of its own about what they think happened to Juanita? And did it ever go to an inquest? 
Yeah, it did actually. It went to a coronial inquest in 1983 and that was eight years after her disappearance. Her parents had passed away mm. by then. But they came up with an open verdict declaring she was dead, but the cause and location of her death remained unknown. So in 94, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Joint Committee on the National Crime Authority, who were investigating her disappearance, noted, because of her newspaper campaign, her links with a supportive union and her position as a Victoria Street property owner and ratepayer, it was possible to see Nielsen in July 1975 as one of the few significant obstacles to the plans of developers. She was just 38 years old and, as I said, her house un remained untouched for four years after her disappearance until the Supreme Court granted probate to the vendors and they could uh, look at selling her estate. But over the years, it, it came up for sale a few times. Fortunately, heritage status was granted to the property, preventing its demolition and preventing, you'd be pleased to know, the erection of high-rise developments, which Frank Thiemann set out to do in the first place. So is it still workers' <laughs> accommodation? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Today, that problem is as relevant as ever. In fact, only just recently, in February 2018, a key worker housing affordability in Sydney's report was released, which basically said that um, the market prices are driving workers out of the metropolitan area. So the teachers, police, firefighters, nurses, paramedics just can't afford to live anywhere near the suburbs that they're supposed to be looking after. Yeah. And this is exactly what Juanita and Mick and everybody on Victoria Street were fighting against. So what's the status now of uh, missing Juanita? She remains on the Australian missing persons list and that's pretty much where it's at to the best of my knowledge. Interesting though, there's been a number of commemorations for want of a better word of her life. She's got the plaque on the footpath outside her home yep. uh, and so does Mick. Mick has one outside his area if you want to have a wander down Victoria Street. Juanita's house is 202. The Juanita Nielsen Community Centre was opened in 1983 the same year as the inquest. It's sort of a hub of community networking, which is right up Juanita's alley. There's been a number of books written. Uh, Peter Reese wrote Killing Juanita, A True Story of Murder and Corruption, and a couple of movies also that were sort of based loosely around Juanita's life. Philip Noyce's Heatwave and another film called Killing of Angel Street. So if you want to pay your respects, now obviously Juanita doesn't have a grave, but she has a memorial. Mm. And that's at South Head Cemetery, yep. beautiful South Head Cemetery near Bird Street in the Catholic section. And, it, and you can't miss it because it's right near the, uh, the Foy's uh, mausoleums, um, two of them side by side. And uh, there to the side of one of them is the memorial to Juanita. I'll tell you what I did see in your story is the line in the middle of the plaque on the footpath outside 202 Victoria Street, which in a sort of a way may sum this up. It says uh, she was not afraid whose toes she tramped on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she obviously tramped on some that yeah. didn't like it. And I think what I love most about Juanita is this is a fiery young woman, beautiful and smart, and, and she didn't need the money, but she fought that battle for all those people who did in her street. Juanita Nielsen. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and audio books. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour. <laughs>